And if you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 32. It's been my supreme joy to have been with you over the last uh, now six weeks. Um, I think six weeks uh, here at uh, Emmaus Road. Uh, Ryan, after this Sunday, Pastor Ryan still has two more Sundays of his sabbatical. But next Next week will be my last. I'd originally uh, agreed to do the entirety, uh, but we did have a death in my family, and my family from Buffalo, New York, has asked that I um, speak at the memorial service. To me, I consider it a great privilege and a great opportunity. Uh, The Carr family in Buffalo, uh, God bless them, uh, is... um, is not well knowledgeable of the gospel. And to be asked to do that is, is uh, to me, a great, ch- a great challenge and a great opportunity. So I would appreciate, appreciate prayer on that final Sunday that you pray for me on Sunday the 31st as I minister to my family uh, the good news that Jesus lives and offers life and hope. I want to welcome the, uh, the video audience, the Zoom audience, whatever technology is being used uh, for you to be uh, present with us today. Uh, I often forget that you're there, and I want to acknowledge that I uh, remember this morning and trust that the Word of God will be a blessing to you. We're going to be looking at Psalm 32. We have sung a rendition, a, rendition, a metric rendition of Psalm 32. We will now read Psalm 32. If you would follow along, let us hear the word of God. A Mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no sin or no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble and surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright of heart. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. 
44 years and I've never learned to be totally extemporaneous. <clears throat> it may seem strange after the reading of that psalm and spending a little moment with Psalm 51 as well this morning, it may seem strange, but there are large swaths of the modern evangelical church that do, do not believe that it is appropriate to confess sin. Let that sink in a moment. Perhaps some of you have come from traditions where the whole idea of confessing sin uh, is, was foreign and not part of public worship. It is argued that all is under the blood over the years, and indeed it is. Over the years, I've been accused of being Lutheran and worse, Catholic. Or of adding works to salvation because I believe that we must confess our sins. Or simply not believing the simple gospel of faith in Jesus alone. The word for this strange aberration, and it really is, is antinomianism. Psalm 32 says otherwise, although it would be argued that's the Old Testament. But it does supply for us the rationale why we labor through the ritual of corporate repentance every Lord's Day and why we strive for the habit of daily repentance in our lives. Confession and repentance lie at the very heart of Reformed spirituality. It always has in all the fundamental Reformation traditions. It was the Anabaptist movements that moved away from these verities of Reformed piety. Jesus teaches us that we must forgive repeatedly because Jesus forgives us repeatedly. How much? Seventy times seven. And that doesn't mean you start counting and when you get to 490, you're off the hook. It's just simply a way of saying endlessly. How often the disciples said, seventy times seven. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Father, forgive us our debts or our trespasses or our sins as we forgive our debtors. That's how we should pray. It's inserted in there as one of the six petitions that form a well-rounded prayer life. From the cross, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And these were among his final words from the cross. Repentance, confession, 
mercy, forgiveness, are a foursome of ideas that are inseparably joined together. And lest we think that somehow we can relegate all confession to to something of the old covenant, it was the beloved apostle at the end of the first century who said if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is a continuous thread that joins both covenants together. So let us not be deterred from the habit, either in our worship or in our private life, of regular confession in seeking God's face. This is one of seven penitential psalms. The two classic, of course, are 32 and 51. Both of them were probably written within the context of David's sin with Bathsheba and subsequent cover-up in trying to, uh, in, in killing her husband. These were great evils, and when they were brought to David's attention, he was deeply remorseful and contrite and repentant. We find that some of these psalms, like Psalm 6, has similar language. Other psalms that are included are 38, 102, 130, and 143 are part of this seven uh, seven penitential psalms. And we must always remember that the ground of forgiveness is the shedding of blood. The shedding of the blood of an animal that represented a substitute for the penalty that sin deserves. And the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament was built around this. From the time of the Passover, all the way through the book of Leviticus, right on up to, to the very words that were spoken when Jesus appeared on the scene in public when it was said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. For Jesus indeed became the one final, once for all Lamb that became the ground of all future forgiveness. It's not that, it's not that repentance and confession cease, it's the endless sacrifices that have ceased between the old and the new. And Hebrews 9.22 is clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. For Leviticus 17.11 says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your soul. It's the blood that makes an atonement for your soul book of Hebrews has the repeated phrase that this sacrifice now was once for all in what Jesus did in our place. In fact, it wouldn't be too much to say that the heart of the gospel is forgiveness. The very heart of it. 
very essence. The ground of all joy is forgiveness. The liberation of of the bondage of sin is the forgiveness of sin. We worship because we are forgiven. Augustine's maxim was that the beginning of knowledge is to know yourself to be a sinner. Jesus said in his final discourse in the upper room, peace I, live, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. All of this is in the context of what Jesus was about to do in order to make forgiveness available to all who would come to him. So for this psalm, I have given you in your bulletin as an outline five words. They all start with a C. And those words um, can help structure us and kind of guide our thoughts as we walk through this prayer. The words are covenant consequences, confession, counsel, and conscience. Now, each of those words need a little explanation as to why I chose them, but they all work very well in helping us to walk through this psalm. So I begin with covenant. We believe we are the covenant people of God because the Bible teaches that. Forgiveness is the fundamental promise of the covenant of grace. He's going to write his law in our hearts, we are told in, the, in, the, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 31. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Hebrews chapter 8 that quotes Jeremiah 31 which reads, Similarly, and in essence the same, but says this, For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. The fundamental covenant, promise of the covenant of grace is forgiveness. The story of Scripture is how the Lord positioned, is positioned to forgive those who have sinned against him. Our psalm says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the, is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and, it does, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What a wonderful two verses. It's really what the Bible is all about. With the coming of the Lamb of God... Paul could say, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, Ephesians chapter 1. Here we have a threefold benediction for the child of God. 
a threefold blessing that is pronounced upon the people of God. Transgression is forgiven. Sin is covered. And iniquity is no longer counted or held against us. Now, I think we have trouble with that. I know I do. My mind will often go back to the regrets of my past, all of which I have confessed probably more times than I need. And they are covered, as far as God is concerned, even though they still trouble me. I wish I could live life again and undo some of those things. And perhaps you do too. But people like me, and if this is like you, this is where we need to return. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is the fundamental promise of the covenant of grace. Let us rejoice in it and receive the blessing of that liberation. But there are consequences for those who who renege, who resist. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. And then you'll see listed the word selah, which is a transliterated Hebrew word, which we're not entirely sure of the meaning, but it was probably had something to do with a pause for the music to continue for a moment, something like an interlude. There is a foreboding consequence for those who resist or ignore repentance. For David, he remembers all too well the darkness that covered his life during that period where in self-deception and rebellion he resisted the promptings of the Lord to confess his sin and be public with it. Kind of like our first parents, Adam and Eve, who found themselves not rather than admitting to their sin and rebellion and eating the forbidden fruit, hid themselves from the very presence of God, resorted to dressing themselves in fig leaves, lying, and when confronted, blame-shifting. She made me do it. The woman you gave me made me do it. Eve said, the devil made me do it. Blame shifting is a classic response to those who stubbornly resist confessing their sin. David admits to his persistent guilt to the physical, emotional, 
mental and even spiritual ill health that it caused him. Now, I, I think verse 3 is somewhat is figurative. My bones wasted away. Um, I think he's just talking that physically he, he was he's brought low. It was on his mind. It weighed him down all the time. He didn't want to be found out. What if somebody found out? My groaning all day long. All of that was God's heavy hand upon him to bring him low so he could raise him up again. He lived as though he had maxed out his credit cards and was living life as though he was only paying the monthly interest and never getting ahead. But you remember his encounter with Nathan, the prophet. Finally, God intervened in a more particular way, set Nathan to tell a story that David quickly identified with and overreacted to the story, not knowing in the moment that he was reacting to his own stubbornness and sin. And you remember the, Nathan pointing his bony finger at David and saying, you're the man. And he was broken. It was broken like Peter was in the moment when the cock crowed for the third time. It was broken. A broken and contrite heart, David discovered the Lord will not despise. The Lord does despise resistant, proud, self-sufficient hearts, but a broken and contrite heart is the God is the heart that God will move into and upon. God does not bring us low. He does not wound us to destroy us. Only the devil does that. God accuses to heal us. And then the third word that takes us through this psalm is the word confession. In a sense, this is the great turning point. This is the high mountain, as it were. In verse 5, David says these wonderful words, these words that only the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus shining into our hearts can enable us to say and do, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Repentance is a self-aware naming of my sins. Specific. Not as though, forgive me all my sins, but forgive me specific. And doing so with a humble and contrite heart, confessing them before the Lord, and I would add before those whom we may have offended. 
God will forgive. But we must confess. We have a part in this process. It is as though David discovered something revolutionary. Something that large parts of our world doesn't seem to understand that we can let that we can our sin can be covered and let go it can be forgiven and we can be a forgiving people society knows nothing of this the society in which we live will hold a person responsible for a word spoken in their foolish youth all the way to the grave. And that's what's modeled before the American public. We have a different message. We have something different to say, that God forgives. And in His grace, we can be renewed and changed. It is as though David discovered this revolution. And he did discover it by God's grace. Confession calls for humility and contrition, as Psalm 51 says. So what does a confession of sin look like? Well, biblically speaking, Psalm 51 is classic. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your thoughts. And it goes on. This is the pathway to pardon. It's not, an, uh, it's not a new covenant ideal. It continues. As John said, if you will confess, I will forgive. There are false confessions, though. Paul says, for the godly, grief produces repentance. Repentance. That leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief. Sadness that I've been caught. I've been exposed. Not sadness that I've broken the heart of my heavenly father. Augustine again said, the word is scarcely out of his mouth before the wound is healed. And then we have verses 6 through 9, the counsel. Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely the rush of great waters, they shall not reach you. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or the mule without, uh, without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit or a bridle, or it will stay near you. I will counsel you. 
First, we see, we see David's counsel out of his own life experience to the people of God. And then that's followed by God's counsel to the people. These two counsels are simply this. Don't be silent and don't be stubborn. Don't be silent and don't be stubborn. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. This is David's counsel, something he has learned, offering to the people of God. Don't do what I did. Come quickly to the Lord who is willing to forgive counsels, human and divine, here are offered to help the newly liberated find strength in their walk through the gospel road. Then God himself chimes in. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And here's my counsel. Don't be like a donkey. Don't be stubborn like a mule. They have to be bridled and led about. Don't be like a dumb animal. First, we pray for strength. Second, we trust the Lord to keep us on the narrow road by his word and spirit. And third, we cultivate a tender heart and don't resort to stubborn behavior and self-denial and the like. Finally, conscience. There are few things that are more liberating than the approbation and assurance of a clear conscience. I want to say that again. There are few things that are more liberating than the approbation and the assurance of a clear conscience. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. This is actually the 13th time in the first 32 Psalms where the word steadfast love is mentioned. It's one of those, it's the gospel word, it's the central gospel word of the covenant of grace. The steadfast love of the Lord, sometimes translated covenant love, sometimes translated loving kindness, and here translated steadfast love. As I said last week, this steadfast love is akin to the rich teaching in the New Testament, not the least of which is John 3.16, which reads, God so loved the world. This is his steadfast love that he gave his son. He provided the sacrifice. He paid for our sins that whoever believes in him and trusts in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Gospel grace 
and peace now surrounds him. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So at the end of the psalm, which begins with the blessing of God and then a a, uh, narrative of his own personal experience, ends with this explosion of joy from his heart. O. Palmer Robinson has said that nothing debilitates a person more completely than guilt. And I would say nothing liberates more completely than forgiveness. In the Family Worship Bible Guide, these words are written, the gospel of forgiveness is the basis of, of the repentant sinner's happiness. It is most wonderful to know that our sin is covered and forgiven. Amen? Remember the woman taken in adultery. The story in John chapter 8. A woman whose life was a mess. Been shredded by the evil use of men. She was brought before Jesus one day to try to catch him at his words. Cast on the ground and men were picking up stones to stone her which the law of Moses they believed gave them license to do. And before they began casting their stones they They told Jesus, what are you going to do about this woman? And he did something unusual that commentators are not entirely sure the import. He began writing something in the dirt with his finger. You recall that. And one by one, the rage fell from these accusers. And the stones fell to the ground. And one by one they slipped away into the crowd. Now some people believe, and I would be one of them, is that he was actually beginning to write in shorthand. It doesn't have to be shorthand. You just two words in the Hebrew, thou shalt not uh, kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. Maybe that's the commandment they wrote. And they all knew that. In other words, if that is the case, he was, he was convicting them with the law of God. Then he turned to the woman. And he said, where are your accusers? And she looked up from the dirt and looked around. And they'd slipped away said, Lord, I have none. And you remember what he said? Neither neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. You realize that is our ritual, your ritual of confession and forgiveness every Sunday. The reading of the law. The hearing of gospel hope. 
the directive to go and sin no more, to live that life that God in his strength enables you to live. And to do so with explosive joy that comes only from the knowledge that our sin is forgiven, it is covered, and it is taken away as far as the east is from the west and cast in the midst of the ocean. To mention a few of the metaphors and the pictures the Lord has given us. Remember what Paul asked in Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And if he has said so, if he has said, I forgive you, then who are you and who am I to say, but Lord, you haven't? It goes on and gives that wonderful rich statement who shall separate us from the love of Christ tribulation distress nakedness famine sword no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and Paul was convinced and I trust you are as well that nothing life death angels demons things present things to come nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord This psalm is that pathway to pardon. And that's why it lies at the center of the regular habits of Christian piety. Let's pray. Lord, we we try I trust that we have heard your voice today and the power of your promise to us. I pray, Lord, that you would enrich our prayer life by by giving us that confidence to lay before you those sins and not try to hide them from you, hide from you what you already know. We pray, Lord, that we would know the richness of your forgiveness, the sweetness of your forgiveness, voice every time we fail you and the wonderful restoration that only the gospel can give and we pray in jesus name amen